Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Access, and I see a lot of new faces, and I just want to especially extend a warm welcome to all of you who are here with us. Uh, we really kind of a privilege to be able to gather together in worship. And so, um, yeah, I wanted to take a moment to pray before we dive into our message. I think it's been a pretty, you know, pretty crazy last couple weeks, right? Um, whether it's, you know, the, the stress of impeachment trials, whether it's the coronavirus and outbreak and just trying to, you know, manage all these different things and not get paranoid. I think it's been a, a time in which people of God have been invited into what does it look like to trust and have faith um, in the Lord? So, yeah, let's take some time just to, to pray, uh, to invite God's Spirit to um, calm us down and to help us to hear what He has to say to us today. So join with me in a word of prayer. Uh, just as we were instructed, Lord, last week about the, the palms down and palms up activity, we place our palms down, we release our anxieties, our fears, fear of the unknown, uh, fear of this virus, fear of uh, politics, um, just all the anxieties that are kind of surrounding us, it seems like, on a daily basis. We release that at the foot of the cross this morning. And we place our palms up and we receive the gifts of your presence, the gifts of your grace, peace, joy, hope, courage, and freedom. These are gifts that we find in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us uh, through me, that we would be open, God, to what you have to say to us, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, about over uh, a week and a half ago, uh, I was in Chicago. Ted was actually there, too, uh, for our annual pastor's conference called Midwinter. Uh, and for me, um, because I'm not ordained yet, I'm in that process, I was taking one of our required classes. It was a class on covenant history. So our denomination is the Evangelical Covenant Church, and all of the ordinance, that's what they call those of us who are in the process of getting ordained, uh, we have to take a class that covers the history of the covenant. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, those are two words, denomination and history, that I don't typically get that excited about, right? And so for the idea of spending an entire week, nine to five, learning about our denominational history it was something I was kind of like, okay, I'll do it because I kind of, you know, I sort of feel like have to. Have to. Uh, but to be honest, and quite to my surprise, um, as the week was going on and as I came back from that week, I found myself extremely encouraged by my time there and by what I learned. Uh, it ended up being really fascinating to me to learn about some of our history. Uh, because, uh, like for me, and probably many of you, Access uh, is the first covenant church that I've ever been a part of. And so it's not like I, I have known all this stuff about our denomination. It's just, you know, our, our church happened to be covenant, and it's like, okay, so I'm joining the covenant in a way. And so it was really good to learn about some of our story and some of our history. Uh, in a way, it was, it's kind of akin to if the church is like a family, and the scriptures say that it is, then learning denominational history is kind of like popping open some vintage photo albums and then kind of scrolling through and be like, oh, that's, that's kind of where we came from. Came from. These are some of the heroes of the faith that uh, shaped who we are today. And part of the richness of my experience there was that uh, the classmates that were in my class um, came from 
all over the country, representing really diverse backgrounds in different churches. So, for example, there was Samil, an African-American pastor, who pastors an inner-city church in Detroit uh, that is doing a lot of amazing community transformation uh, among African-Americans. Uh, there was a guy named Wapsall, uh, who's from Oklahoma, and he actually served uh, at Life Church, which maybe you haven't heard of, but Life Church is the, the church behind the Bible app that many of us uh, have on our phones. Uh, this church has like 70,000 people across its different satellite campuses. It's just mind-blowing, right? So there's Wapsall. And then um, there was Bobby, a Mexican-American pastor. Uh, he shared some of his story, and uh, some of his relatives are undocumented immigrants. And then there was Rebecca. Uh, she grew up as the daughter of missionary kids in the Philippines, right? And so she's Caucasian, but she speaks Tagalog. Tagalog, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm saying that right. Uh, and she pastors a church in Hawaii. Uh, definitely got to go visit her, right? Um, and then, uh, you know, and then there was this Taiwanese-American guy from Ohio who's now living in Houston, uh, serving at a church that meets in a warehouse. And so in case you didn't know, that's, that's me, right? That, I'm, the, I'm that guy. So all that to say that the range of churches that were represented in that room, the, the range of expressions and experiences was extremely diverse. But it wasn't always that way. Because what I learned uh, is that this denomination started in 1885 when a group of Swedish immigrants immigrated to the United States of America. And many of them gathered in Chicago, and they, uh, in 1885, decided to form this, this, this new church, this new denomination, which was originally called uh, the Swedish Evangelical Mission Covenant Church of America. So you have to keep in mind, and this is a thing that I didn't quite understand. Like, I knew that Swedish immigrants started our church, but they were Swedish immigrants, and so what did they speak? They spoke Swedish. And so up until 1935... Okay? Only 17% of covenant churches were using English in their worship gatherings. So can you imagine if right now I was speaking Swedish instead of English? That would be a very different experience. In fact, I wonder how many of us here know Swedish. IKEA doesn't count, because that's actually not a Swedish word. It's actually an abbreviation. I don't know if you knew this. An acronym, all right? Um, so it, it's, it made me, and many of, our, many of my classmates, Asked the question, man, so how did this mono-ethnic, you know, Swedish immigrant church become the highly multi-ethnic mosaic that it is today? In fact, I, I dug up this picture. It's not from 1885, but it's kind of close, right? This is the faculty of North Park, which is our denomination's main uh, higher education institution in Chicago, Right? And so you look at those pictures. Uh, granted, it's in black and white and, and stuff like that, but I think the majority of them are Swedish. And if you were to look at the covenant today, if you were to join you know, me and Ted at this midwinter conference with all the pastors gathered, you would see so many different cultures and experiences represented. In fact, this is our Mid-South Youth Camp that we participate in each year. And if you ever serve as a counselor, it's one of the most amazing experiences because you, you just gather in the room um, such diversity. And not just for diversity's sake, we're gathered together in the name of Christ, for Christ, to worship Christ, and to then leave and take his mission to wherever we are. 
So how did that happen? Uh, how did this Swedish-speaking, mono-ethnic church become the multi-ethnic movement that it is today? That's a longer story that I hope to share one day. Uh, but for now, I just want to say this. The story of the covenant didn't emerge just kind of out of thin air. It is a story that is connected to a much longer and broader story. It is a story that is connected to the story in here. And I'm not talking about the iPhone story. I'm talking about the Bible, right? The Bible app, right? Uh, it is connected to the biblical narrative that we exist, you know, that, that forms our community and our life together. So last year, uh, we started a series, a sermon series called A Church That Unites Diverse People. And what we were doing is we were tracing the formation of the early church through the book of Acts. I don't know if any of you guys remember that. That's, that's what we were talking about all last semester. And what unfolds in the book of Acts has so many parallels to the story of the covenant. Because the early church, as we've seen, started off as a single ethnic group among Jewish people who were saying yes to following Jesus as Messiah. But the message of Jesus loves the world was for the whole world. And so it wasn't long before this message that began with Jewish people began to cross divides, to cross barriers. And soon there were all sorts of unexpected people joining this new community. And so if you recall, we, we saw how a blind beggar became part of their community, how an Ethiopian eunuch became part of the community, how a Roman centurion became part of their community. And what was most surprising of all was that the Spirit was forming a new humanity in which both Jew and Gentile were included. That was truly radical and revolutionary for its time. And the key figure in this work was a man named the Apostle Paul. Paul and his co-workers passionately planted churches among Gentile populations. And so today, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 16, because last semester we went from Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 15. And we saw in Acts chapter 1 that the key verse that kind of sets all this narrative into motion is Acts chapter 1-8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this verse creates a critical link between the Holy Spirit and the mission of God. The Holy Spirit would empower everything that takes place from Acts chapter 1 all the way through Acts chapter 28. And so we've seen thus far how the Holy Spirit allowed this church that began in Jerusalem among Jewish people to go outward and to spread among people uh, that were formerly excluded, who did not belong, and say, yes, you have a place. You have a place in this new family of God. And so in, in Acts chapter 16, we're going to see Paul's intention is to go back and visit some of these Gentile churches that he had planted. He wants to see how they're doing, and he wants to encourage them. So let's read from Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 1. 
So Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. Right? So uh, Timothy is biracial. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So just a quick side note about this. As Paul's traveling along, he decides to take under his wing a guy named Timothy. Uh, and he ends up serving as Timothy's mentor, and Timothy ser- serves as his protege. So in fact, as a result of this relationship, uh, there are two New Testament letters that are written and addressed to Timothy. Uh, and I think what is so cool is that Paul, being a Jew, decides to invest in this intercultural friendship. And during our Faith Village Pledge, uh, one of the challenges we gave to this community was, hey, this year, as we talk about being a church that unites diverse people, could all of us begin to be a little more intentional about investing in an intercultural friendship? Because it's really relationally, this is how we will embody this vision. And I'm really encouraged that many of you said yes to doing that, and I, I hope many of us more will do so, following the example of Paul, who invested in this friendship with Timothy. Going on, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. This is like a Dr. Seuss book. But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, so there are a bunch of, like, odd-sounding names. I actually had to, like, go on YouTube and, you know, do the, how do you pronounce Phrygia, right? And it's like, Phrygia, Phrygia, right? So I practiced that at home. I think that's how you say it. You can, you can test it later, not now, all right? Um, so there's all these different names. It can be a little bit confusing, so I wanted to just kind of give us a graphic of what was happening here. Uh, that's kind of a, you know, a panned out, uh, zoomed out lens of the different travels that Paul took, but we're going to kind of zoom in a little bit. Okay, so if you start here at the yellow box, that's kind of where Paul meets Timothy in Lystra. And then Paul begins his journey through Antioch, And then he goes through that region near Asia, Bithynia, and Pontus, okay? Um, And uh, you'll see that it's it's a very short text, but what the commentary that Luke provides about Paul's travels is really interesting. The text says that Paul spent time in Phrygia and Galatia because the Spirit kept them from preaching the word in Asia. And then when he tried to enter Bithynia, so he was trying to go eastward, it says again, the Spirit would not allow them to. And so then Paul has this vivid vision of a man begging him, come to Macedonia, come and help us. Uh, And it's kind of reminiscent of Peter's vision of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Do you all remember that, those of you who are here? 
And so as a result of this vision, then Paul heads westward, going through Troas and then on towards Macedonia, which, as you may know, much of the New Testament is written to the churches in Philippi and Thessalonia and these different churches along the way. Notice that Paul got a series of no's from the Holy Spirit before he got a yes from the Spirit. He got a series of no's. No, no, don't go there. No, don't go there. Yes, go here. And notice still that Paul was trying to preach the gospel. He was simply trying to be obedient and faithful to what God was calling him to do. And yet, as he was doing this, he encountered some resistance, some hindrance, some barriers. The text says that the Spirit actually stopped him from pursuing the path that he had intended to. Now, depending on your and my religious background, we may be more or less familiar with the Holy Spirit. I think some of us grew up in churches where practically we practiced a worship of the Trinity that was made up of God the Father, God the Son, and our study Bibles, right? Practically and functionally speaking, sure, yeah, the Holy Spirit is like the third person of the Trinity, but not really sure what to do with him or it or the Spirit. Um, on the other hand, I, I imagine there are some of us who grew up in more Pentecostal or charismatic backgrounds, where the filling and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was much more on our radars, emphasized in our discipleship. Um, it's interesting to note that globally speaking, the church leans more charismatic and more Pentecostal, certainly more than in the United States, which is why in the U.S., books like uh, Francis Chan's Forgotten God, right, which talks about recovering the idea of the Holy Spirit, are, are actually very popular and necessary because they provide a corrective at least in the Protestant denominations, uh, in which the Holy Spirit has kind of been neglected or forgotten. Uh, and so I'd like to ask us as a community, I don't want to make any assumptions, like, what do you typically think of when you think of the Holy Spirit? Love just to, you can just shout it out. What, what do you think of when you think of the Holy Spirit? And yeah, go ahead and just <laughs> be bold, friends. <laughs> just say, what do you think of? A guide? Yeah, definitely. A guide? What else? What's that? Can you say it again? Oh, yeah, flame. Yeah, that's, that's a flame in our heart, right? This fire, right? The fire, this fire in our hearts and our bellies that, that leads us, inspires us to action. What else do we think of when we think of the Holy Spirit? Healing. Healing. Yeah, that's right. So many examples in the scriptures of the Holy Spirit just powerfully healing someone, blind, you know, unable to walk, lame, uh, or even spiritual healing, right? Freedom from demonic possession and different things like that. Um, what else do we think of when we think of the Holy Spirit? A comforter. A comforter, that's right. Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit as one who comforts us, right? Who comforts us in our, our, our fear, our, uncer our uncertainty, our anxiety. What else? Yeah, the Holy Spirit gives us boldness and strength. And in fact, this is what we see in Acts chapter 2, isn't it, right? The Holy Spirit comes down upon this early church, fills them up, and they end up boldly proclaiming the gospel in languages they did not know themselves. And it's just an amazing and incredible display of power. And that's a good segue to what, what I want to share next. I think for me, when I think of the Holy Spirit, I think of an empowering force, 
the Holy Spirit empowers us to do uh, the miraculous, empowers us to overcome sin, overcome obstacles. Um, and in fact, I think Acts, uh, Ephesians chapter 3 captures this sentiment well. Uh, Paul says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, right, together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Uh, he then says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever throughout all generations. And so one of the things we get from this verse is that the Holy Spirit is a source of great tremendous power. In fact, the scriptures teach us that the same power that rose Christ from the dead is the same power that resides in every one of us who claim the name of Christ, who have placed our name in Jesus. That is astounding. It is a power to overcome any obstacle and any mountain that we might encounter. Amen? But we don't typically think of the Spirit as putting the mountain there in the first place, do we? Right? The Holy Spirit, we typically think, the Holy Spirit empowers me to overcome the mountain. But we don't typically think of the Holy Spirit actually putting mountains in our way in the first place. And in a way, I want to suggest this is kind of what is happening in Acts. Paul was trying to be faithful to his gospel calling, trying to preach the gospel to Asia and then Bithynia, but then for some reason, the Holy Spirit prevents them. And we don't exactly know what kind of barrier or obstacle that was placed there, but it became clear that the Holy Spirit was hindering them in the direction that Paul wanted to go. And I think this brings up a really interesting point, that the way the Holy Spirit works is he doesn't, you know, he's not just putting obstacles to like mess with them or make their life harder. He's actually putting, uh, uh, redirecting their steps to go in a different direction. In this case, it's a geographical direction, right? The Spirit wanted them to go to Macedonia. And often I've found that a no to one thing is a precursor to a yes to another thing, right? So a no from to those places that Paul had intended to go enabled them to say yes to the place that the Spirit wanted them to go. So you could extrapolate that into kind of our present life. A no uh, to one job leads to a yes to another. Maybe not immediately. Maybe the wait is longer. Uh, a no from maybe like one person we want to date uh, leads to an I do from the person we commit to in marriage. A no in one place leads to a yes in another. Uh, truth be told, though, no one... No one likes to hear no. Um, you know, I live with some people that really don't like to hear the word no because uh, when, you know, they ask me something and I say no, they don't like it. But when I ask them to do something, they are more than happy to say no. Uh, no one I know likes hearing no. I don't like to hear no. 
But no, it can be. It can be from the Spirit. It's not always from the Spirit, okay? Let's get that straight. I was just reading Thessalonians this morning, and Paul says he wanted to visit the Thessalonian church, but but Satan actually blocked their way, okay? And so there are times in our lives when the enemy blocks our way. And so I'm not saying every obstacle in our life is from the Spirit. Certainly not, but some are. Some are. Sometimes the Spirit closes certain doors or redirects, uh, redirects us from the way that we wanted to go to, in order to go another way. And so how many no's do we need to get before we get the yes? I think many, many of us want to know that. Uh, I don't think this text gives us a, a formula to follow. I only know that when we follow the Spirit and we intend to follow the Spirit, there will be yeses and there will be no's. And the presence of no's is not a sign of God's disfavor on us. It is not a sign that he has withdrawn his grace or his love or his presence from us. Because sometimes that's what we think. We have this shorthand theology that if God you know, really loved me, if he was for me, then, then the path would be clear. I would just go straight into the places that I want to go that I think are the right place to go. But no, sometimes can be a sign that the Spirit is very much at work in our lives. So Paul is prevented from going where he had intended to go, and it's then that he receives clear direction about where he is supposed to go. And so the text says he gets this vision of a man begging him to come to Macedonia to help them. Um, interestingly, if you read the narrative a little bit further, you'll see that in Macedonia, he ends up, he, he ends up meeting a woman named Lystra, uh, Lydia, okay? He ends up meeting a woman named Lydia. And so I was wondering, like, oh, who's the man? Like, is it her husband? Or is it her brother? Uh, who knows who it is, right? Um, and it reminded me uh, of a time uh, when I think God really spoke to me in a dream. Um, so f- rewind uh, about 13. 14 years ago, my wife and I were students at Fuller Seminary, living in L.A., and we found out that we were going to have our first child. Uh, And for me, I've shared some of this before, I was like, when I found out, I was actually really, really afraid. I just did not feel prepared to be a dad. I, uh, you know, I felt so immature. There was uh, other things that I thought I wanted to do, whatever, and like, I, I was really anxious about it. I was really afraid. Um, And so uh, before we found out the gender of the baby, I actually, you know, I was was sleeping one night and I had this very vivid dream. I don't typically have dreams I remember, but this was different. I actually very vividly can recall the dream. And and in my dream, I'm like, um, I'm holding a baby girl and throwing her up in the air and then catching her. And she's just squealing with delight, uh, smiling, and my heart in the dream is just filled with love and tenderness, right? Um, and then when I woke up, it was as if something had just changed within. Like, I think God really used that dream, and whether he spoke to me through that dream or whatever, but he really used that dream to speak to me. And it changed my posture, and I was, I was ready to welcome this child, presumably a girl. <laughs> but as those of you guys who know us, like, we have four boys in our family, right? So that, that didn't happen, and... Uh, 
for the record, this is being recorded. This, we're done, right? So like, I don't know what to make about that, you know, but God used that. And so maybe there's something akin to this. Paul's seeing a man, but then he meets Lydia there, right? Um, and so the question for us, I think this morning, uh, the question that this text invites us just to think about a little bit is, what role does the Holy Spirit play in our life? What role does the Holy Spirit play in our life together as a church? Does the Holy Spirit still speak to you and me? Do you believe that the same spirit that cared which direction Paul would go would also care about a scared first-time father? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit has something to say to a church located in Houston, Texas that is seeking to bring hope and unity to an extremely divisive and fractured world? Does the Holy Spirit have something to say to us? And the passage that we read is hardly sensational. In, in Acts, there are many sensational passages. Uh, in this passage, though, there's no like mind-boggling miracles. There's no supernatural displays of power. Just the Holy Spirit giving guidance, <laughs> navigating uh, Paul and his companions about the direction that they should go. And I'm glad for that. Because I think sometimes we think that living by the Spirit means that... It's like getting involved in a bunch of crazy stuff. And in maybe our minds, we're like, yeah, that crazy stuff is for like those Christians, but certainly not for, you know, us normal Christians, or certainly not for me. You know, whatever normal means or whatever crazy might mean. But I, I really, you know, as I was sitting with this, I really want to urge us. I really want to challenge us, both as individuals and as a faith village, to press in more deeply into a life that is marked by a sensitivity and awareness to the Spirit of God. We can't afford to forget the Holy Spirit. We can't afford to ignore the Holy Spirit. And so what does this mean for us? I wanted to draw just some three some three, you know, some three practical applications that, at least from what we've talked about today, there's so much more that could be said, and hopefully this is something we can explore more together. But the first, uh, how do we as a faithful grow in our dependence and awareness of the Holy Spirit? First, I think we learn to embrace the Spirit's yeses and nos, or the nos and the yeses. So think about this. What if instead of listening to the Spirit, Paul had just insisted on going the way he had initially set out. Like, all right, whatever, Spirit. I don't, I don't care that you're trying to keep me from going to Bithynia. I'm going there because that's on my agenda. What would have been the repercussions? We don't know. Um, but I think this. If we seek to become more aware that the Spirit is all the time guiding us and involved in our lives, we can be more okay with the no's and yes's that we do encounter. It enables us to not be as attached to the things that we think are the right direction and be able to respond to the yes's when they come. So many of you attended a retreat, the retreat that we had last year uh, called uh, Sacred Stories, uh, Finding Christ in Our Diversity. Um, as we've reflected on this retreat, uh, we've really believed that it was a special moment in the life of our church, especially as we journey uh, along this path of becoming a church that unites diverse people. And what was so powerful about our retreat was that um, 
the, the main focal point of the retreat was that we shared our stories with each other. And we received and we listened attentively to one another's stories around ethnicity and race and our spiritual journeys. And that was really powerful. But you know what? That wasn't the original plan. Originally, we were trying to get like a really well-known speaker to come to our retreat because that's what you do at, you know, church retreats. You bring in the speaker, everyone's excited about them, you come and you have a great time, right? But uh, the first speaker we asked said no. And then the second said no. And then the third said no. And then we were kind of like, okay, like, Spear, are you trying to, like, tell us something? Are you trying to redirect our steps? And that's when we we're like, hey, look, hey, maybe we could try something different this year. Um, in July of 2016, all right, so uh, I, was, uh, I was slated to give uh, about three messages um, that summer. And originally, I had planned uh, to give uh, a series of three messages on the idea of our soul, right? Our life with God in soul. Uh, but then, uh, uh, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, and then five Dallas police officers were killed in succession, sparking what would become known as the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and the Blue Lives Matter counter-movement, sort of. Y'all remember that? And I remember reading all the news and just being like, man, this is heavy. This feels like, uh, you know, like uh, opening a giant can of worms. Uh, but I really sensed the spirit saying no to the soul stuff uh, and saying, John, press into this stuff. Press into this. Let's talk about that as a church. And so from that, uh, we ended up doing the Conversations That Matter series. And from that emerged the Wrecking Crew, which has been a space for our community to talk about and dialogue about race and ethnicity. And all that has been a precursor to this work that we really believe that God is inviting us to. And so sometimes a no leads to a yes. Secondly, uh, we need to take location more seriously. Throughout Acts, the Spirit sent people to specific places for specific purposes. The Spirit led Paul not to Asia or Bithynia, but to Macedonia. Uh, we live in such a mobile and transient time, right, where you, literally, you know, we can just uproot and just go, just go. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in the Bay Area, and uh, in the Bay Area, uh, uh, his pastor, and I guess apparently other pastors, will often reference this two-year mark. Because at two years, a lot of the contractors who are working in Silicon Valley, their contracts expire. And so you can only be on contract for up to two years. And so after two years, a lot of them just uproot, and they end up, they end up leaving. And then some by necessity. But it's gotten to the point where the pastors will challenge the community and the members, stay longer than two years. Invest where you are. And I think what this text reminds us is this idea that wherever we might happen to be, let's not see our workplace or our neighborhood, whatever physical space that we occupy, just as the place that we are, but maybe we can learn to see it as maybe this is where the Spirit has actually sent me at this particular time, that I'm here because God wants me here. And there are, are, are people here who are in need of uh, knowing and seeing, experiencing the love of God, the good news of God. And so we, none of us knows how long we will be in a particular place. 
But sometimes it could be really tempting that while we're in a certain place, we're just thinking about the next thing, right? And so we don't really invest. We are not really open to how the Spirit is at work around us. And so I think there's an aspect in which we take location. We take where God has us in a particular place seriously. And we ask God, God, how are you moving? And how do you want me to be a part of that? And third, let's cultivate a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. In our denomination, the covenant, this is how we talk about our life with the Spirit. That we want to be a people, a church, that consciously depends on the Holy Spirit. I think this is, this is in stark contrast to what many of us are, you know, more accustomed to. is a constant distraction by our iPhones or social media. But rather than this, let's have a conscious where we're thinking about we're praying about throughout the day, not just, you know, maybe, certainly while we pray, while we read scriptures, but throughout the day, you know, as we're at the grocery store, as we're working, as we're do, typing emails, let's consciously, God, I want to be attentive to your Holy Spirit. What might you be saying to me? How might you be trying to comfort me or challenge me or get me to step out in faith? Right? We want to cultivate a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. And so how did a mono-ethnic Swedish immigrant church become an incredibly multi-ethnic movement uh, across the globe? It happened through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit's empowerment, conviction, guidance, and leadership. It happened as humble men and women surrendered their lives and said, Holy Spirit, would you lead me? Would you guide me? Church, as we seek to follow Jesus, as we seek to live life with God, as we seek to become a church that unites diverse people, may we learn to press in and trust in and depend on the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, in this quiet, we invite your spirit to speak to us, to reveal to us what you have to say to us. God, I pray that you would help us to be people who learn to depend and follow the whispers and the movements of the Holy Spirit. God, for the sake of the world, for the sake of the church, for sake of your name. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.